Hello and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry, and I welcome you to episode 93 of season 10 where we're looking at the MCU universe and for today's episode we shall be looking at the lovable but arrogant god of thunder the 2011 hit the fourth movie in phase one Thor based on the comics by Stanley and directed by Kenneth Branagh and starring Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman, Stellan Skarsgård, Tom Hiddleston, Rennie Russo and Sir Anthony Hopkins. Now, if you've had the great privilege of hearing my last episode, you'll know that the God of Thunder, Thor Odinson, or simply Thor, made his first appearance in the comic books in 1962 in one of the issues of the Incredible Hulk comics and then spawned off as the mighty Thor and his trusty hammer, Mjolnir. That's amazing, hammer with the god-awful spelling. I found out in ancient Norse language it literally means grinder. Which is probably why in the Avengers and the later Thor movies that there is this bond between Banner and Thor because of the comic book origins of Thor and Hulk. They do have this sort of buddy cop potential that plays well inside the MCU universe. So this comic book character is based on a Norse god of the same name who is the Asgardian god of thunder which allows him to fly with the help of his hammer, change the effects of the weather and of course his superhuman strength and his role as a god slash king. There is actually a series called Ragnarok on Netflix, which goes into the origin stories of the mythology. But here we are simply looking at the interpretations of the mythology done by Marvel Studios and, of course, the great Stan Lee. Now, a lot of names are thrown into the mix with who was going to play for this god, this prince, king to be. I mean, this was a tough casting. This was ridiculous. This guy had to be tall, had to look strong, had to have a certain look. And also he had to be stacked. I mean, he was playing Thor, a character that was done in pantomimes and theatres back in the days by bodybuilders and weightlifters so not only did you need to be a very reasonably good actor you needed someone who could get into shape and stay in shape for the future films which is still going on from 2011 that's 10 years ago so 10 years to stay in shape so this actor had to be thor built godlike basically consistently in shape and fit from 2011 to 2022 which is when the fourth four movie is coming out called Love and Thunder. So that is 11 years where this actor needed to be able to get into Thor physique and maintain it. So this fundamentally meant that this actor needed to be fairly young to be able to keep up with this regime for the space of 11 years. And wouldn't just be portraying the God of Thunder in his four movies, but in the Avengers movies and slight cameos and other movies. So take nothing away. This was the role of a lifetime for a potential newcomer or a potential known actor. The role was most likely going to be a newcomer because one negative thing about playing a superhero is your schedule is not free to play any other roles. I mean, look at Robert Downey Jr., for instance, hardly played another role in the time he was playing Iron Man. I mean, the other massive thing he did was Sherlock Holmes. And there was a film called The Judge, which is a great film with Robert Duvall, came out in 2014. And it was the first film since due date that Robert Downey Jr. wasn't involved in a Marvel movie or a Sherlock's home movie. So that's what I mean when I say it was you needed to be someone relatively new. Now, Chris Evans, of, of course, was quite well known and had a similar task on his hands in terms of staying in that Captain America physique for a good 12 years, hence why he rejected it a few times before finally committing. And you can see how dominant that role was for him because he hardly did anything else while he was capped. But I will be covering that podcast next, so uh, tune in for that one. But for right now... We're going to carry on with Thor. So <clears throat> let's have a look at Thor. So many names were thrown into that. Charlie Hummond, who may who may know from Green Street. Joel Kinnaman, who's in Suicide Squad. And one of the favorites, studio favorites, that Marvel were looking up, eyeing up, was Alexander Sarsgaard, primarily for how he looked. Because he is Scandinavian, and he is blonde, and he's quite tall, and he did prove that he could get into shape. Unfortunately, it wasn't for Thor, but later down the line for Tarzan, and he looked really good in it. His father, however, Stellan, landed the role in the movie as Professor Eric Selvig. Now, another actor that auditioned for the role was none other than Tom Hiddleston. 
And he found out that Kenneth Branagh was directing the movie, and they both happened to be forming together at the West End stage production of Ivanovich. Now, Hiddleston's apparently, there's a story that they did on a chat show, and Hiddleston apparently stormed into the dressing room with an empty plastic cup from a water cooler, like Thor's hammer shouting, come on, Ken, what do you think? And Kenneth simply responded in a jokey way, Darling, stranger things have happened. <laughs> so Tom Hiddleston auditioned for four, and they've absolutely loved his audition. But Kenneth Branagh thought he had the look of someone else, like Loki, and eventually got the role of Loki instead. I mean, they, he he was actually one of the front runners for Thor uh, because audition, his audition was so good. But Kenneth Branagh was like, "No, listen, I like him so much, but I'm, I'm putting him as Loki." So Tom Hiddleston actually learned he was going to be in this movie when he got a call from his agent while he was in some random pub in North London. And apparently he screamed and frightened everyone when he got offered a role. Remember, Tom Hiddleston before this was relatively unknown. So this was also a massive role for him. Now, you know, this has definitely shaped his career. Tom Hiddleston soon became a fan favourite playing the role of Loki with his own mini TV series, the main antagonist for the Avengers, and bridging some gaps for the new phases, especially the new one coming up with this multiverse. Now, Tom was very prepared. He trained in the Brazilian martial arts of Capoeira, went on a strict diet to make sure that Loki was lean, but also very hungry through his performance. I mean, one thing he didn't like was Loki's helmet, which was apparently very uncomfortable as it was extremely heavy to wear and he couldn't see out of it. I mean, he channeled that anger, though, with the fight scene, so it had to come through, though. Other actors who were eyeing up the role of Loki was Jim Carrey, who basically played Loki in a mask, since his mask is possessed by the god of mischief. But ultimately, Tom Hiddleton auditioned, funny enough, for Forb, which was that, which is what landed him the role for Loki. So, the other actors in contention for the role was uh, Josh Hartnett for Loki, who I believe was the runner-up to Tom Hiddleston. Uh, Charlie Cox was another one who auditioned for the role, but he actually ended up playing Daredevil in the series, and makes a slight cameo in a movie that's just come out as well anyway uh so the role of four however the lead and title character was between two unknowns at the time so they actually got it down to two people and those two people happened to be brothers it was a one chris and liam hemsworth chris was saying in an interview that he found it amazing and funny that both of them had come all this way from america um, australia or even to america to get a career in acting only to find themselves battling against each other again for the role of their lives. I mean, he was modest to say that he was rooting for Liam to get the role of Thor and thus kick-started Chris Hemsworth's career, which put him in the Hollywood mix doing other films like Rush, Extraction, Red Dawn, and The Heart of Sea. For the role of Odin, this was the role that Stan Lee said he wanted to play, but he didn't, unfortunately. They decided on Anthony Hopkins, and Stanley agreed with the decision and said, yeah, you can't, I can't argue with that. Anthony Hopkins hadn't read a single thing about Thor and knew nothing about the comic books. He only took the role because he was interested in the concept of the father-son relationship. When Anthony Hopkins was on set for the first day of filming in full costume of Chris Hemsworth, also in full costume, he literally went up to him and said, there's no real need for acting, is there? I mean, look at us. <laughs> there was a funny interview of Anthony Hopkins who claims he relates to the role of Odin. He went on and said that, I'm a little like Odin myself. He's a stern man. He's a man with purpose. I play the god who banishes his son from Asgard because he's screwed up. He's hot-headed, temperamental young man, probably a chip of the old block, but I decided he was not ready to rule the future kingdom. So I banished him. I'm harsh. And my wife complains and I say, that is why I'm king. Typical Anthony Hopkins. And he just recently won his second Oscar last year, so he's still got it. One of the I think he is the oldest actor to win the lead and actor role for um 
The Father, fantastic film, by the way. Uh, Renny Russo is in this film. She plays Crean uh, Frigo. It makes a six-year comeback in this film, actually. I think it was her daughter who convinced her to take this role after a little break from acting. I love Renny Russo, great actress. I mean, this was her first comic book movie. It was also Anthony Hopkins' first comic book movie as well, considering his large CV. So... As many young lads would like to know to prepare prepare for the role of Thor, Chris Hemsworth put on a massive amount of muscle in this movie. It's interesting because he was in a film called Cabin in the Woods, an interestingly funny and crazy horror movie. And there's this lake scene in the movie where they all had to jump in the lake and be topless. Now, back then, Chris Hemsworth was just a normal guy. And he plays a jock in this movie. And there was this one guy who was meant to be the nerdy character in the movie, but he didn't get topless because he was absolutely ripped. And so they thought it'd be weird if the nerdy character was more ripped than the jocks. Um, and now looking at that scene, I, I mean, if you look at Chris Hemsworth now, after his transformation as four, it's quite a funny story considering how big he is. Um, both physically and financially. Um, but yeah, so he went through a six month heavy regime of eggs, chicken, sandwiches, vegetable, brown rice, steak, and protein shakes. I mean, Chris Hemsworth continues to be the ambassador for fitness now, starting his own gym plan, promoting protein supplements, and not just maintaining, but growing his physique in the later movies. Like I said, they needed someone young who could carry this physical requirements on, and it was certainly, you know, they got the right man for the job. So Kenneth Branagh was the man selected by Marvel Studios to bring this film to life. Multi-talented man, he is the main antagonist in 10 and his most recent work. But besides that, he's the captain in Dunkirk. He is Hercule Puro himself, nominated for five Oscars in acting, writing and directing, part of the opening ceremony in 2012 London Olympics, an expert in history, Shakespeare and theatre. I mean, he is the man... Of all trades in the art industry, he was particularly interested in telling the story because it seems pretty hard to merge a mythological world with the modern day world in the same film. And the MCU producers thought, well, we need someone who knows how to do that. And not to mention, you know, Kenneth Branagh was a massive fan of the comic books growing up. So that helped him secure the job as well. I mean, when he got the job, they sent him every single Thor comic to him and he's like, hey, brush it up. He was particularly interested, though, in telling this story um, as well, because he was just absolutely fascinated with the mythology of Thor. And he just, you know, he was very interested in the uh, the relationship between all of the characters as well. Branagh said that he loves the mythology. It's an interesting concept to create visually. He believes that Odin sort of rules the MCU universe. And it's kind of true, because in phase one, his son, or stepson, is the main antagonist. He's also the man who hid the Tesseract and the Infinity Gauntlet in the Avengers. Um, and you can see the gauntlet in the Asgardian vault, the glove encrusted with six reality bending stones and you may notice this to be inconsistent since we know thanos arts to contrast the infinity gauntlet but they cleverly corrected that in thor ragnarok by having hella claiming that the gauntlet and some of the items in the vault were actually fakes so maybe we didn't see the right ones in there or maybe we did we don't know we shall see so you can see some other artifacts in that vault as well. The tuning fork, a device that can summon monsters, the tablet of life and time, the slab that can extend one's timeline, the eternal flame, which we see in Ragnarok, the warlock's eye, and the casket of ancient winters, which plays a major role in this film. Now, another good thing about Branner uh, and what he did with this film was trying to reference the true mythology of Thor rather than simply go to the comics. So in the movie, you can see these little cameo references or easter eggs uh, to the true mythology of thor so there's a small piece of dialogue when thor says that he needs some he needs to ride some cats which seems funny but in the mythology his mother frigga has a chariot pulled by two large blue cats which is quite interesting so that was a nice reference to that the bifrost of course is described as a rainbow road in norse mythology which is basically visually is in the movie 
Also, when Jotan calls a Thor a little princess, this is a little nod to a story in ancient, Ro- uh, not Roman, Norse mythology, where Thor actually dressed up as a princess to retrieve his hammer back. And there are many more scattered around this movie, so it shows the attention and detail done by Kenneth Branagh and the producers. So he obviously read all those comics again and you know added bits and dabs in the movie. Um, so you can even see Dr. Eric Selvig, played by Stellan Skarsgård, looking at the mythology at the library. And in the book, there is an illustration of Odin walking across the Bifrost Bridge, which into which he speaks in one hand and the Tesseract in the other, which is actually quite interesting. You remember the Red Skull, the main antagonist in Captain America. He mentions that the Tesseract was the jewels of Odin's treasure room. So the Bifrost is actually a wormhole, and they deliberately didn't use that term in the movie because the producers thought it was too 90s, so instead they called it by its scientifically proper name, which is the Einstein-Rosen Bridge. And speaking of the Red Skull, who makes his appearance in Endgame as a sort of host of the Soul Stone where Hawkeye and Natasha turn up, this marks the first movie where we see Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye. Only briefly, but establishes likability and also his ability on the bow, but that he never fires, just the air of confidence he has. This is the only film to show him use the bow right-handedly as well, and also the only film where he's using a combat bow, not an actual bow, which is very interesting. Never uses it, though. So I was looking up some of the mythology the other day, and in the original Norse readings, it turns out that Loki, uh, Loki is Odin's adopted brother, not Thor, which is quite interesting, which makes Thor his stepson. And the way Odin lost his eye in the film was apparently in a battle, but in the mythology, he gave up his eye to obtain cosmic wisdom, which is why he's so powerful. I mean, this film could have been a disaster, but you had to connect these two worlds. I mean, this film opens up with a huge visual effect shot of Asgard, which had to be right. It had to feel like Mount Olympus, somewhere where the gods live. Then you have to establish the dynamics of these characters and the relationships and conflicts between all of them. And there is loads to cover. The soon-to-be king to be banished. You need to really dig deep into that father-son relationship. And not only that one, but with Loki and Odin too. We can all, we can also forget the complicated love-hate relationship between Lord Thor and Loki, which needs to be established because, as we know, Loki becomes an important character later on in the MCU universe. You also then, once you've done all of that in the first half of the movie, you have to enter Midgard, the world we know earth and put someone in there out of time so we need to also have this sort of juxtaposition of an ancient world and a modern world using the same characters and how they adapt to it and that's also an interesting way of doing it so there was a lot going on in this film for the first introduction of thought and like i said some other characters like uh you know jeremy renner who's in it for like you know five minutes that itself offers a lot of uh, you know comedic moments as well. It has to be done right. And if one thing didn't work, then it would have indeed been a domino effect and the rest of the film wouldn't have worked at all. This is why, and I don't think the second movie was that great. Apparently, it's like the lowest ranking movie in the MCU universe. And honestly, I believe um, it's it was down to one component, and that was the director, Kenneth Branagh, who directed the first and didn't direct the second. I mean, you heard what this guy had done. You've heard this evening. It was the only reason why I think Natalie Portman accepted the role. She literally said a comic book movie directed by Kenneth Branagh. That is wild. I've got to do it. So it needs to be in the hands of a skilled auteur. This is the kind of story that depends on outstanding, sometimes over-the-top and yet subtle execution, and he does deliver that in this film. What works with Iron Man, and again here with the same characteristics, is having a compelling hero to follow, one that acts as the arc. Like Iron Man, Thor is arrogant, self-centered from the very start, and like Stark, 
something has happened to him for him to be worthy. I mean, he has to go back, you know, he has to go down to go up again. In Iron Man, he's captured and he decides to invent the suit that he uses to fight evil. And in Thor, he is banished from Asgard where he learns that he has responsibilities and commitments of being king. And there is more to just being a hero than just strength of being godlike. If it wasn't for the natural charms of Chris Hemsworth or the likable arsehole quality of Robert Downey Jr., these films would not have worked full stop. You have to remember that. One key thing you can take from four, though, you should always acknowledge mistakes so you can learn from them. And also that making mistakes is actually important to learn later in life. In fact, making them is so crucial to how you build as a character, not just as a, a superhero in the movie, but, you know, as a person. It's a life lesson for everyone. And that's why it's so relatable, because, you know, Thor is still a guy. You know, yeah, he's a god, but, you know, he's still going through the same problems that some people have on Earth. I mean, probably not exactly the same problems, but relatable problems, kind of like Tony in Iron Man. And speaking of people, you shall notice there's a few little cameos in this movie, some obvious, some not so obvious, as you do with Marvel movies these days. Kind of a tradition now, isn't it? But obviously, Stan Lee reappears in this movie as a truck driver who attempts to tow the hammer with the crater from the crater. Um, that was pretty cool. So that was the obvious one. Um, sort of Hawkeye sort of a cameo in this movie as well. But um, yeah. And the first person who tries to lift the hammer out is a guy called Michael Stanzinski, one of the writers who worked on the Thor comic book. So a nice little shout out to him there. You've also got Walter Simonson in this movie. He was the comic book writer and also the artist of the Thor movies. And he has a nice cameo at the banquet scene near the end of the movie. And speaking of tradition, this post-credit scene sets up the Avengers nicely of Nick Fury and Selvig talking about the Tesseract. Interestingly, both actors both appeared in the Deep Blue Sea. Not the Deep Blue Sea, just Deep Blue Sea. Samuel Jackson and Stellan Skarsgård. One of my favourite shark movies, honestly. Great film. But yeah, as we know, tradition for certain cameos and post-credit scenes continues on, don't they? But anyways, that is all I have time for uh, with, you know, Kenneth Branagh's debut comic book film on the God of Thunder, introducing lovable characters that become well-established later on, like Loki, like Odin, Jane Foster, and of course, Hawkeye too. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to me on iTunes, Google, Amazon, and Spotify, and you can follow me on Instagram. That's Film Exploration AH, or lowercase or one word. But right now, thank you for listening or tuning in to Season 10 with Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.